Hey, it's V, back from square one. Regulated, life is still upside down. And as I've been experimenting through conventional and unconventional mental health, I'm reporting back. This time, with good news. Ready to rock, drop, and roll. <laughs> so don't get burnt. The divorce, the jail, the affairs, and my attempt to swing, I mean sing. Our lives will always be on fire, so why not raise the real race and break the matrix? Maybe this is how it starts, as we unfuck ourselves. Let's find a way out. They don't care about you, so stop giving a fuck about them. The content of this podcast is for general purposes only, and it's not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any condition or disease or substitute for medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician, mental health professional, or any other qualified medical health provider with any questions you may have regarding your medical condition or treatment before starting or discontinuing treatment. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or a crisis, please reach out immediately to the Suicide Prevention Line at 800 273-8255. So my name is Patrick Eilers. I am a master's level uh, licensed professional counselor in uh, Novi, Michigan. Um, it's a suburb of Detroit. And I'm a specialized, I specialize in uh, sexual addiction and um, specifically working with folks who are uh, navigating uh, those things in their life that, uh, that struggles mostly with sexual component and the addiction, really in the addiction realm. Uh, but I've worked in, in really all, all, all areas kind of as a general practitioner in, uh, in mental health. So doing that for like the last seven years. The pandemic, uh, there's just some circumstances that kind of just worked out the way they did. And um, I had an opportunity to come here to North Point, which is the practice that I'm currently working with, working for. And uh, here at North Point, that's where we specialize in sex addiction. And so since about September of 2020, I've been uh, really been working with that population exclusive, pretty much exclusively. Nice. Thank you so much. And so tell me a little bit about your experience in working with the uh, jail system. Yeah, so when I was teaching intra psych, um, basically it's it's a lot of just the kind of regular coursework that they would do. Uh, that you know, if you hear an undergrad class teaching psychology, um, really kind of the fundamentals of psychology. What are some you know some of the theories behind it? What are some of the things that people typically would have um, you know studied during that time? Kind of history of psychology. Um, so that was most of the time that I've worked when I was teaching. That was most of my focus was just kind of intro, basic kind of level fundamentals to psychology would be kind of another way to think about it. Yeah. And so what do you mostly see there? What what type of cases do you mostly uh, see in a jail system? Well, in the jail system, you probably have all different sor- sorts of folks. Um, like I said, I wasn't doing any therapy, so I really couldn't speak to like uh, specifically what all cases would be there. Um, but I know definitely, um, you know, you see a lot of folks who are, have gone through some, some specific part of their life, some type of trauma. I mean, we, we talk a lot about trauma kind of throughout our culture now. And so that's something that um, a lot of people experience. And um, at least in my experience with the teaching, um, there, there's a lot of real interest about psychology, interest about kind of fundamentals of how people develop and how people um, grow and learn and become the people that we are. So I would say that it was, it was an enjoyable experience because a lot of people had a lot of passion for it, passion for wanting to learn. And, and definitely people wanted to, um, yeah, they were hungry to learn that. Though, and that was really, that was, that was really enjoyable as, as, as a professor, um, just having an opportunity to kind of interact and, and learn about their lives and learn about their, their stories. I bet it was a real rich experience for you. Definitely. It, it is something unique. Um, just even the process of just kind of getting in, going out, you know, she had to kind of, you know, to be, you know, to go through all the, the security and, you know, be let in. And so there's, uh, there's an app, there's an absolutely a part of it. That's very unique in that aspect. It's not something that just, um, it's not probably for a lot of people. 
I would encourage people to have an opportunity to do it to definitely get a chance to learn from that. But um, yeah, it's not something that everybody um, would feel comfortable doing. So please tell me, what is a sex addiction? What what defines it? So specifically, sex addiction. You know, we think about uh, you know alcohol addiction and drug addiction, and so sex addiction is kind of the one that I think culturally we don't really have a a clear picture picture on, and so that's something that. Uh, we're still learning a lot about, we're still learning a lot about what, what defines it, what doesn't define it. But, you know, one of the things I consider or think about when um, we're talking about what does it look like um, for sex addiction is specifically, you know, are these unhealthy sexual behaviors? Um, are they affecting my life in a way that uh, affects my functioning or affects how I think about the world? You know, my, my example I think a lot about is that uh, you know, we're all wearing sort of sunglasses of our own experiences. We all have certain belief systems. We all have certain things that we've learned. And I say belief systems not regarding like uh, religious belief systems, but more so belief systems about us, about people, about our culture, how we you know how we develop those kind of things. And so, um, a lot of times for many folks, sex addiction is something that is not usually considered to be a problem for them, right? It's, it's something that they might say, "Well, you know, this is something I do, and, and and everybody else does it, even though we don't talk a lot about it, even though we don't bring it up, even though it's a secret to our partner." And mm-hmm. I think there's an aspect of that where. Um, you know, it does, how does that affect my life in that way? Is it something that is overwhelming? Does it overwhelm my thoughts? Does it overwhelm my actions? Um, I think any other time that also you have secrecy within, within relationships, we see uh, a lot of folks um, that causes what we call partner trauma and it traumatizes the partner to know that, um, you know, there's infidelity in the relationship. And so there's an aspect of that that's, that carries out as well. So it, it really is a case by case type of thing. It's very hard to, to necessarily say, hey, this, this person, person A, you know, has sex addiction, person B doesn't, um, they, it will manifest itself differently, but at the same time, similarly, if that makes sense, um, there's about 10 things that we would look for, 10 sort of criteria, uh, or maybe like a diagnostics. Um, if you're thinking about, like I, my example is if you think about a cold, when you have a cold, you're, you know, your mouth, you know, you're going to have a running nose, you're going to have sore body, um, headaches, there's going to be you know, various different ways, but a cold can look a little different for everybody, how our bodies react to it. And, you know, there's about 10 things we would typically look for. One of those things would be, you know, do I spend a lot of time thinking about sex? Is something is that, you know, to an obsessive degree, is it something that I, that I have in my mind? Another thing was, this something that I've tried to stop before? Um, have I tried to stop either um, unhealthy relationships with folks? Have I tried to stop pornography use? The, the big one I think we see that's kind of under, undermined is, is the pornography use. A lot of people don't really realize how, um, how sort of prevalent that is, right, in society. Um, again, we don't talk about it, but it's something that is uh, very, very predominant in our society. And, and um, but people don't, you know, it's something that definitely affects people in ways that they don't uh, always necessarily see. And so you mentioned that uh, your workload, um, the type of clients you had started from five to mid or late 60s. How early can a sex addiction start or how early on can someone um, pick up something that may lead into a problem later on in life? Yeah. So yeah, general population is working in that, in that, like I said, five to 60 range. Um, but I've had a lot of, a lot of folks I've worked with, um, when you talk about specifically sex addiction, I mean, there's certainly folks who are older than 60 who, who have this as something lifelong has been part of their experience. Uh, one of the real things that's different about, I think, um, where we're at sort of in our time frame of the world is the, um, is the idea that there's been a lot of folks who are older who've experienced pre-internet pre-internet pornography pre-internet sex addiction so to speak before we've had post-internet sex addiction and post-internet pornography um so a lot of times uh, a child a, a person right or at an early age we would look for what they would call an early experience 
where they'd have an opportunity to, or they've had an opportunity where or not it was a, they've had some type of contact with, with pornography or some type of contact with sex um, at a very early age. Um, the ranges usually are between six and nine years old. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to result in some type of addiction. Uh, but for a lot of folks, you know, that's something that would be very traumatic for them in the sense that there's too much information too soon. And so um, that can definitely amplify curiosity, amplify desire to try to make sense of that. And so um, for some folks that that will end up leading to more, you know, sort of you think about a ball rolling down a hill, that's the kind of the first initial event that pushes it down the hill. And so it'll gain speed pretty quickly. Um, you know, again, uh, sometimes it can be the 10 year, 10 or 11 year old who their buddy tells them, hey, go look at this website. It's really cool. And uh, or go Google these words or whatever. And so uh, a lot of kids, you know, certainly more so post-internet, you know, have had these early experiences. And so um, that just kind of kicks off curiosity, kicks off desire. You know, we have hormones around that, you know, time frame and are just in our general um, growth as people. So there certainly is an aspect where, where that will amplify as well. But like I said, kind of the pre-internet person probably has a lot more um, uh, just kind of build up, right? Trying to get print pornography, trying to hide it. You know, there's a whole much more of a process to, to going through uh, pre-internet type of inter- interactions and actions versus post-internet. Um, you know, I always tell the guys I work with, you know, you've got, you got two clicks and you're to it. You know, there's two clicks away from a relapse. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, just because of the way that because there wasn't internet, people had a lot of different behaviors that they could sort of change before they would go down that path. So that's something we're dealing with a little bit differently now, I think, in this era than it would be, you know, say 35, 40 years ago. So what you're saying is that you find a greater amount of cases of or a sex addiction in an older population today? Folks who are older, um, it's been going on longer. It's been harder for those folks to necessarily identify that they have what we call an addiction. Um, I think the younger population uh, certainly feels like this is something that um, has been an issue, a concern for them, um, but it isn't that big of a deal. So they tend to sort of not look at it as an addiction, whereas an older population might look at it as, yeah, you know what, it is an addiction. And, you know, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to handle that? So the attitudes can vary um, depending on the person, depending on the circumstance. Um, and again, also, that's how much awareness do you have for you? How much awareness do you have um, in your behavior and what you're choosing to do and how you're choosing to use sex in that way. And again, not everybody uses it necessarily in health and in an unhealthy way. Um, so again, there can be, there can be circumstances um, where I haven't had this personally, but I know some of the, there are, there are cases out there, people who, you know, want to have sex 30, like just for example, number 30 times a day with their partner. Well, that's unhealthy for their relationship. So it's one of those kind of things where um, even if it's meant in a good context, that can be something that can become unhealthy for sure. So going back to the early exposure of pornography in children, what is healthy? What is not healthy for a child? I mean, we know that their sex is part of life. Um, So what would be, as a professional, a healthy amount, not of pornography, but perhaps of sex information for a child and at what age as well? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly there is a lot of talk of that right now, right? So there's a lot of, you know, what do we inform people? What do we inform children? What do we let them know? I think there's certainly an age. There's also a maturity level to every kid. So, you know, again, you're going to hear me say a lot of case-to-case situations. But um, I think certainly the idea that if we're going to teach kids about um, what they need to know, what they don't need to know, I've heard, I've seen a lot of things recently about using correct, you know, terminology and those kind of things. And I think that's the positive thing, right? You, you want to use, you want to teach kids, you want them to know, you want them to be aware. 
Um, I think the one of the things we don't want to do is we don't want to um, continue to bring either shame because this is a very shame-based uh, behavior, or we don't want to put a position where we don't talk about it. I think again, you know, can you talk to a 12-year-old in a serious way about having about sexual, you know, information? Most likely, yes. But again, it depends on the 12-year-old. Some 12-year-olds may not, you know, have that connection that way versus a 14-year-old or versus a 10-year-old or whatever. But I do think that. Uh, you know, if you if you don't talk about it, there's a lot more research, uh, secular research, and otherwise it says it's out there. That's, you know, a lot of the time they say secular because there's a lot of times faith-based communities will say, you know, we're just we're just going to try to not acknowledge that. You know, we're going to try to put it under the rug with, along with you know half a dozen other sort of topics we don't really want to bring up. And then what happens is for some folks that increases curiosity, and for some other folks it it makes the um, the shame increase. So if they are engaged in pornography. I think it's more of a better space to go, Hey, like, you know, let's talk about what that can do. Let's talk about what the damages are of that. Um, similarly now, I think we'd have an approach with that with, you know, cigarettes or drinking or something like that. Right. The same kind of thing. We want to talk about what, what are the lasting effects of that? What are the, what's going to happen if you continue down this path, so to speak. But the biggest issue in that sense is that if we, if we don't talk about it, if people don't, don't bring it up, um, the shame increases and then it's more hidden. And so a lot of these behaviors, especially, um, you know, guys I've, I've worked with is that the shame increases, increases, increases to the point that it's hard to even tell what, what's reality because you're not in reality anymore because you're, you've been removed from it, so to speak, right? You don't see it the same way you would if somebody who's not using, using sex or using, you know, in this case, sub, if you're using substances. So that's another reason why sex addiction is really a slippery slope for folks because it, it ends up being that, how am I going to see again? How's my view on relationships? How's my view on sex? And so Kind of going back to your question, I think it. I think if we can have those, if we can have those conversations uh, with children in a healthy way, in a good way, and that's you know being very direct about it, being you know very honest about it, but also you know giving correct terminology in an, in an educating way, that can't hurt them in the sense that you know is it going to them to get them to think more about it? It's hard to say. Probably not necessarily. Um, you know, I guess I think I'd rather, I think I'd rather have a kid know more about something than them not to know just because like we said, we've, there's may, way more research to suggest that if we don't talk about it, then the likelihood is that the problem will increase. And I love that you give me a research-based answer, which is great. Thank you for doing that. So one of the things that I'm very interested in is, you know, aside from curiosity and overuse, because, you know, an addiction starts, you know, one click away, sort of, what are mm-hmm. other factors uh, socially or, or mental health-wise that lead into an addiction? Uh, as such. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say the biggest thing socially. So one thing that we see a lot and a lot of times people will report is, is really isolation. Uh, this particular behavior isolates folks. Uh, it isolates it isolates people because it gives them an opportunity to, to act out. It also gives them an opportunity to, um, to really not see relationships as being uh, intimacy specifically, and I'm talking emotional intimacy, as being something that's safe. So I always think about uh, home improvement if we're talking about intimacy in that sense. So you go back to Wilson, the guy that was the next door neighbor uh, to Tim Allen had that fence and you could only see <laughs> up to his eyes. And that's a person who is struggling with emotional intimacy. They don't want the person that they're talking to, particularly their partner, um, usually in this case, to know what's going on in their yard, what's happening in my yard, the things that are in my yard, the traumas that have happened, the hurts that have happened, the wounds that have happened. Um, I don't want people to know that. So I got to keep that fence really high. And so what happens is that the pornography particularly, but you can see with other unhealthy behavior that 
um, it allows me to have the, the need met of my sexual desire, sexual component of that be met without people seeing what's really going on with me, what's really like, what's my life really about. And so socially, I would say one of the things that happens is we will not connect with people. It's a point where all we're doing is using pornography. A lot of people are that, right? It's, I was just isolated. I was kind of going through my life, come home, do the same thing over and over again. The brain likes to do the same thing over and over again, even in an unhealthy way. So a lot of times what happens is, is once we've established a behavior, it's very hard for us to break from that because that's what our brain is designed to do. It's, it's designed to be streamlined. And so I think about, um, you know, little freeways. Everybody has a freeway in their town. And so uh, for the people who live in bigger towns, but uh, so essentially, you know, when you, when you Google map something, um, it gives you three ways to get from point A to point B. And if your typical freeway is to go down, you know, here in Detroit, we have uh, 96, 94 is kind of our two big east-west freeways. You know, if I'm always going down I-96 to get to where I want to go, um, my brain's going to eventually think that's the automatic place to go. Let's just keep going down that freeway. It's easy. It's, you know, it's smooth. There's eight lanes to travel. But when I do a different behavior, I have to actually physically build that freeway myself in my mind. And so when I do that, I have to start out as a, as a walking path. So I have to cut through all of the weeds and the brush, and then I have to make that a bike path. And then from a bike path, I have to make that to a two-lane road, and from a two-lane road to a four-lane road, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons why it takes a long time for people to redevelop these behaviors, because there's been things that have allowed them to get onto that certain freeway, so to speak, and they're, they're sort of stuck there so, um, in some ways. Um, again, not permanently, but that's, that's for a lot of folks, that's kind of been their normal. That's what becomes their normal. So going back to my analogy about the fence is that if I, if, if it's my normal not to share my intimate details, I'm going to struggle in, in intimate relationships because I'm never going to want to share anything because why do they, why do they need to know what's going on in my yard, so to speak? So it's easy for me to keep the fence up. And so the kind of your second part of the question was, um, you know, what other mental health is involved there? I mean, I would say really you could have any type of mental health be part of this. Um, the one we see a lot of for folks is ADHD or ADD because um, the brain, pornography in a lot of ways is kind of like the hyper, you can hyper focus on it. And because of that, you can kind of quiet the rest of the other thoughts that are in your mind. So we see a lot of uh, ADD, ADHD kind of uh, combination with this behavior. ASD, I'd say, is, is, is one that would be fairly common simply because ASD is a very limited scope of interest for most folks. But I think, you know, depression, anxiety, you see a lot of that with it, too, just because, you know, again, does those play off with each other or do they play off the addiction? Um, it could be a combination of a lot of those things. Um, one of the things that we look for in sort of the addictive cycle for people is um, despair. Despair is a big part of that. At the end of, you know, acting out, you know, you feel like, hey, why did I do this? I feel like garbage. I don't want to you know, I don't want to keep doing this behavior. That's what we call despair. So that's definitely has a, a correlation with um, depression as well. Thank you. And so let's say I have depression and I need something to cope. What is the difference between coping with maybe alcoholism or drug addiction or food addiction than sex addiction? What is the difference? Uh, well, I think if we're just saying overall, right, there probably isn't much of, there isn't necessarily really too much of a, a, a difference, right? We're using something that in its in a different way than it's, it's supposed to be for us in an unhealthy way, right? So whether it be substance, if we overeat, that can be unhealthy for us. If we smoke, that's unhealthy. It can be unhealthy for us. Um, if we use, use pornography, it can be unhealthy for us, you know, unhealthy for our relationships. I think the one thing uh, when you're talking about what's the difference between that and kind of when we have, if we have depression is that, um, 
you know, one of the things you know about depression is that it is that it does, you know, there's, there's certain physical combats that you can use to kind of help get you elevated and kind of start to build off of that. The two big things I think about is sleep. And I think about, um, physical activity. So those two things are the big things usually as combats for depression. If you add sex addiction in there, if I'm isolating, I'm probably not going to really do a lot of physical activity. I'm not going to get out much. I'm probably also not going to do, get a lot of good sleep. A lot of folks who really struggle with the sex addiction piece, you know, can be on pornography for, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight hours, you know, and just, that's just, that's what they do. They keep, you know, they just keep viewing it and you know, they may masturbate, they, they may orgasm, they just keep going through that cycle. And so I'd say from a depression perspective, if, if, if I'm using that as my way to feel better, it's a very short, uh, it's, it's a very short piece of, um, Hey, I can do that. You know, this is something that's going to feel good for a short period of time. And then that's it. I'm back to feeling the way I felt. So we know like, um, certainly sleep and physical activity are more sustainable, right? They're going to help me feel better longer. And so that's where I would say kind of like with a lot of addictions, right? These are always like short little bursts of, you know, temporarily feeling good. And then there's a lot of usually despair goes with it. So a lot of the other types of behaviors that are more healthy for us are certainly able to sustain longer. That's a big part of it. Definitely. One of the things that I'm curious here is we talked about a little bit, or you mentioned pornography within a, a relationship or a marriage. And so just like, you know, hey, it doesn't kill anyone to go have one drink, having one drink a month, let's just say, doesn't, you know, may make me relax. Maybe, maybe I can have a good time. It's just one drink, one beer. Um, is it the same with pornography? Oh, I, I think so. So there's, there's kind of, there's kind of multiple answers, I think with that question, sure. but <laughs> so I would say that I think in some, some circles, some cases, again, if you're coming from a faith-based perspective, again, that would be something that for most folks would feel like it's infidelity. Mm-hmm. Other people may not feel it's infidelity. So there's a really a, a coupleship perspective. You have to think, take there first is, is this something that the couple is comfortable with? One of the things I would say with that, though, is that at the same time, it's just because we're comfortable with it doesn't necessarily mean that in the long run, again, it's necessarily healthiest for the relationship. I think one of the things if we introduce pornography to a marriage or to a relationship is that it starts the the cycling in our minds of comparison. You know, we're going to start to compare ourselves with the actors. We're going to start to compare our spouse or our partner with the, with the actors or the actresses. And so when that starts to happen, it really starts to undermine that trust of you know, this is my partner and I'm solely focused my sexual love, energy, et cetera, intimacy into this relationship. And so there's, when we start to get out of that reality again, because fantasy, because pornography is all fantasy based, um, it really takes us again out of reality, right? We're not going to be, we're not going to be focused on the things our partner or even the things that we need from our partner. If we're kind of comparing them with the people that are in the, ever seen on the screen. So I think the big piece there with that is, you know, could you have one video a night? Could you have one video a week? Could you have one video a month? Maybe. But I would say that at the same time, we kind of also get a little bit of that already with with social media in a way that it's not intended to be sexual, but we sexualize it. And so because of that, there's already these comparisons. There's already relationships being affected by, you know, um, somebody liking somebody else's post on Instagram or liking somebody's posts on Facebook or whatever the case is, Snapchat, all of them, right? They're all, they'll have an ability to have that sort of comparison be present. So you bring that into effect, you bring it into a place where there already is supposed to be fantasy. Um, I think it can elevate. So I would say that it's probably, again, it's, it's couple to couple, but I think certainly is something that um, can be very dangerous for, for a couple. If you, if you're on that um, space where, 
um, you know, we're, we're allowing this to be part of our, you know, in our relationship or part of our relationship. I'd say certainly if one side is participating and the other isn't, is not participating, that will definitely affect the relationship completely because um, if, at least speaking from my experience with men, men are very visual and they will, they will uh, tend to use that again, that comparison piece. I'm comparison, I'm comparing and having the sexual outlet with, with this, this person that isn't my, my partner. And that can be very damaging to a, to a partner. So, you know, we did focus that it may, let's put that in quotes, work for some people. But speaking of the other side, on the other end, what are some of the consequences? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I think there are far more cons than pros, not to say okay. that. Uh, so there, so like we were just talking about, you know, you, you know, some couples might say, okay, yeah, that's okay for us. And we're going to do that. All right. Let's, that's okay. That's a choice you make. And that's, that's okay. But the consequences for most folks, at least in most cases that we've, we see is that there's what we call partner trauma. Now, I don't know a lot about partner trauma. I'm not a partner trauma specialist, but I do know that uh, partner trauma will look a lot like what we would consider. Um, you talk about PTSD for folks, and that's kind of another one that's a lot of people seem to have known kind of pseudo about what that looks like. And so uh, partner trauma is something that, um, you know, when you see a partner have that, it's um, it's very difficult to see because it's very difficult for unless a partner feels like they, they're able to work on it themselves. In a lot of cases, let's say the guys, the guys watching porn and, and, and the partner finds out about it. Uh, typically the partner will, you know, start to exhibit symptomology, like I said, very similar to PTSD. So you'll see, um, hypervigilance. It's the, you know, where'd you, where'd you go? What are you doing? Where are you taking your phone? What are you watching? Let me look at your, what's your contacts and look at what you're, who you're texting. Uh, another one that comes is, the, is remembering the first time that they found out about it. Is there more? What else is there? What else don't I know? And so I always tell the guys, like, there's, there's never any question that's ever going to get answered. That's not going to lead to another question. It always, PTSD kind of works in that way. It's, it's cycles, right? And so you start to think, and so a lot of ways, the partners actually experience kind of what the, the guys experience in the sense that they, they're out of reality, right? They, they're not seeing things in the light because they're, they're thinking about the betrayal. And so that's something that really affects relationship. But one of the things that, you know, I think would come up to kind of answer you know, more of your question with that, what are the cons is that it just, it really breaks the intimacy, right? Because it, it now makes, I think about, um, you know, your relationship is kind of like a, in some ways, like a, uh, an aquarium, right? It has a whole bunch of life in there and there's, a, you know, there's, there's lots of beauty in this aquarium and there's a lot of um, things that you, they have that are alive. And so and then you introduce a couple drops of red food coloring in the, in the tank, the tank's going to turn red. And you're not going to be able to take that water out because if you're going to stay in the relationship, you're going to, that's now part of your relationship. And so corner analogy you can use is it's like a garden, right? There's, there's things that are alive and there's things that are dead. And so we have to, you know, the garden in order for it to flourish, we got to know what, why the things that are dead, why they're dead. And so it does draw a lot of intimacy apart for folks when they have pornography in their, in their relationship. And like I said, it really creates a lot of partner trauma and, and to try to heal from that is something that then now is it's both parties uh, responsibility to be able to work on that. It's not fair, but it's, it's in order for the relationship to be healed. It's going to take both people. Um, have you ever seen perhaps an addiction on both ends? Yes. That, and that does happen from time to time as well. Yep. So sometimes, um, and again, uh, you know, women, you know, again, this is not gender specific on your side, right? Women can, can have sex addiction. It's actually increasing, I would say, um, from, and we know kind of from statistics that seems to be increasing for women. Um, again, typically in the past, they've been uh, most women have been kind of, and again, I use this label not to, is more of educational and that they would use the word love addict 
to be because it's usually more relational based rather than uh, physical based in the sense of like a pornography. But um, there's a lot of women uh, that you know. Now I said they say there's there's more statistics out there that's moving toward that that's something that's growing for women. So sometimes yeah, both parties could have an addiction, or both parties could be, you know, one party could be hooked on porn, one party could be hooked on romance novels, you know. And so what then you still kind of have to treat it a little bit the same way, right? Both parties have to do their work. Um, they both have to work on what what leads them to choosing to using that behavior in a healthy way, and um, and how do they turn back into their relationship, you know. A, the relationship is kind of parallel, you know, when we get, when you get in the relationship, you're very close. Your parallel is very, very close. But over a period of time, um, you have to continue to turn back into it. Otherwise you'll, you know, just by natural process, you'll start to turn out of it. And, you know, you can go 20 years and be this far apart. Um, and people go, well, you're not the person I married. That's because the person I married changed and grew just like I did. Mm-hmm. So over a period of time, it will, you know, you can, uh, get further apart, but, you know, I, ideally we want to, you know, continue to turn into our partner and nobody's perfect at it, but continuing to turn into, into a partner is really important. Um, sex addiction in comparison to other addictions is pedophilia. Is there an alignment between sex addiction and pedophiles? There certainly can be. I mean, specifically for me, I don't, I don't work with, with, um, you know, pedophilia being something that comes up for us. They're brought in by the law, so to speak. They're being forced to come to treatment. We're usually it's, we don't we're, we don't see that as many of those those, those cases. But one of the things that um, so with that right, so that's again kind of that thing we talked about earlier with the brain, the pathways. You know what what has been kind of my pairing with you know, my sexual drive and my or you know sort of what I find attractive. You know, so there's certainly that element of that that people um, could be addicted to that. It's not, but there's no, by any means say that that's, that's common or that that means that they are for sure. Dr. Patrick Kearns, um, he has this an idea really that his, his research says, you know, what's the arousal template? Arousal templates kind of like, a, if you think about just as it's described, you know, sort of a, a, a template for what's, we're going to find attractive or not attractive, you know, based on our history, based on kind of what we ran into our first experiences, et cetera. So, you know, it's kind of like what, you know, if you're attracted to brunettes, why are you attracted to brunettes? something in your arousal template is part of that. So um, just kind of a simple way of putting it, but yeah, uh, I would say pedophilia is something that hypothesis would be that there's a lot of, a lot of pairing with that over a period of time or some type of pairing over that period of time. And so that's where, um, you know, that, that grows. And so, you know, that that's where a lot of that would elevate for folks is because they're, they're focusing on either something that's happened for, for them. They're trying to make sense of it. Um, and we know from a lot of experiences, people will say that, if they have been abused, they usually, they'll usually also be an abuser at times. That's, that's very common. Um, so that's in our area too. I think that there's some connection with that. Like I said, I don't have a ton of experience working with that specifically. All right. Any alignments that you're familiar with, or do you have work with between sexual abuse victims and sex addiction? Sex abuse for sure. Um, again, that would be one of those things that we would talk about in early childhood or early experience um, would be some type of uh, abuse um, situation. And again, not everybody's going to have that, and everybody's going to fall in that category. Every part of that that be part of their story, um, but that is something that does come up for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And so now let's moving to recovery. What does recovery look like for a person with a sex addiction? So there's a. The big, the big things as far as recovery goes, and you know, we where we're at, where I'm the practice I'm at, we actually have a recovery program. Uh, we our recovery program is based off of Dr. Patrick Carnes, who uh, he is kind of the um, the original guy who did all the research of these this type of behavior. Started back in the 80s, um, he wrote multiple books. His his one main book that he started with is called Out of the Shadows, 
Yeah, it has a newer book uh, called Facing the Shadow, and that's kind of a workbook for folks if they're interested. That's a, that's a resource I can I can say that's out there. Um, you know, the recovery program for us is is kind of a combination of uh, in, the individual work, individual sessions uh, with a therapist, uh, followed with a process group that they're that they're also part of, therapist led, and then usually having some type of mentor or sponsor. That's what it's called. You know, to be kind of go into the program together, having a one on one connection, deeper relationship, that kind of thing. SA is a great resource, basically sex out Alex anonymous kind of thing. So there's SAA, SA, SLAA is, um, so there's various groups out there, kind of 12 step. Um, most folks like in getting, getting involved in that, um, that's a really good thing I can, I can recommend in that way. So again, that's something you can go online and search and there's, there's all kinds of local groups. There's a lot of groups, um, now since the pandemic have gone virtual. So a lot of, you know, you can, you can join a group at any time, any, any time, any place during the day, anywhere you're at. So. Individual therapy. If you're if you feel like you're struggling with sex addiction, you know I'd encourage you to look at um, working with somebody who is at the call certified sex addiction therapist, a CSAT. They'll, those uh, specialists are from what they call as the group called ITAP, which is uh, Dr. Karn's group. Um, who again, they're, they're they're qualified specifically for working with sex addiction. The other one I can encourage if there's any type of partner trauma or you suspect there's partner trauma would be working with somebody who is a a certified partner trauma specialist. So they work exclusively with the partner trauma piece. And um, that's really helpful for partners. It's also helpful to get educated in that way of knowing about uh, what partners need, because that's another part of it. If your relationship has been affected by any of this behavior. How long can sex, uh, sex addiction take to recover? Our program lasts three to five years, again, depending on person. Uh, and, and the reason that that is, is again, if you have a case where, um, you know, this, let's say that this behavior has been going on for 35, 40 years of someone's life. And so they, they started, you know, viewing pornography or started acting out, whatever that around age like 10, your, that's your life. Your life has been, has known this. And so that's one of the reasons why it takes a long time to change this behavior is because you're getting um, a, a real, right down to the roots of, of what's going on. Um, and I think that's another reason why some folks struggle recovering from it, because there's a lot of people who try everything out there, every system, every book, every everything, every podcast, and they don't see success. And so there's an aspect where absolutely a group like this is, that we would provide is something that's really, uh, really needed. And, and in that way, it can really help people in that sense. Other folks, other stories, it might be that, hey, look, I'm struggling with pornography and I really need to get um, some insights and tools of how I need to, to navigate this. And it may not take, uh, you know, three, five years. It may be six months. It may be a year, whatever that looks like for them. Um, so again, I, I think it's really case by case in the sense that, you know, what is, what are people's individual stories? And then also what, how long have you been involved in this behavior? Um, you know, kind of what is your background? Like I said, some, some folks have had, you know, have had not as much, you know, like not to compare trauma, but basically there's some people who've had less trauma in their life than others. And so how does that affect their story versus people who've had more trauma in their life? So that's a big part of it is, you know, what, what does their story look like and kind of what is their elevation of the behavior? Um, one thing I will say is while it goes kind of with the recovery recovery factor, one of the things that we use, um, we use what they call a sexual dependency inventory, an SDI, and it's an online assessment um, that we provide um, through our through working with ITAP um, that allows folks to kind of get on us to get a sense of what their history has been. And it helps us to kind of see some things that would um, help, I wouldn't say escalate, escalate our, our, our ability to be able to see what we couldn't can help and not help with. So I would encourage as far as um, kind of what's, what's some areas that might be of interest to explore uh, with your therapist and be able to kind of get more 
um, insight as far as for yourself, what you can, what you can work on. One final question. So I can have, I can be an alcoholic or I can be a sex addict, you know, as far as alcoholism goes, I just won't drink for the rest of my life as part of my recovery process. But sex is something natural, you know, that was given to us. How do you recover uh, a sex addiction in comparison to alcoholism, perhaps? Yeah. So with, with the alcohol addiction or like a drug addiction, you know, a lot of times we're removing the substance, right? We're removing the person from the substance. We wait a period of time and then, and then sort of we kind of hit the reset button. With sex, it is a little different in that sense. Similarly to food, our relationship with sex, our relationship with food has to change, has to alter. So in this sense, our relationship with sex is that do I see sex as something for me to gain pleasure from because I just want to enjoy it, for example? Um, it's going back to that belief system. So if my belief system is, is that sex is just something that's for me and I can take advantage of people because I because I can and because I've or maybe because I've been hurt in a certain way in a way that nobody understands. Uh, maybe I've been you know wounded from a family member. Maybe I've been through some sort of abuse, whatever it might be. I have now seen sex in, in a way that is now about um, about me. It's focused on it's self focused. So I always consider the idea that you know healthy sex is really about relational focus it's about us focused right so if you're in a relationship it's about having the having that being the draw to you and your partner together so if we're talking about recovering from sex is is it's hard to recover from sex in that sense because we're you know we're already sorry part of a part of us like you said but can we shift that paradigm so to speak from this is something i can use and i can take advantage and objectify people and fantasize about others and and make it about me, take ownership um, of, of an art person, so to speak, in my mind or, you know, uh, an image in my, that I see on a computer or you know, somebody I see in a movie or wherever. Um, and can I turn that, shift it to being about me and my partner? And can I make it about, you know, enriching our relationship, enriching the connection and make it about who, you know, me and the, my partner are together rather than making it about myself? And I think that's really the big shift when you're talking about, uh, getting away from unhealthy sexual behavior because almost every unhealthy sexual behavior is really a very self-focused thing. It's very selfish. Um, and so kind of back to another question you mentioned earlier, I'll just kind of add to that is that you mentioned what are some other things we see a lot of is right. Um, people who do struggle with, um, you know, being self-focused. And I know narcissism is a word we use a lot in, in society right now. You know, people who truly are a narcissist can struggle with sex addiction because they, they have a hard time empathizing with their partner or empathizing with their people. So, um, sex is one of those things I always think about taking, taking it, taking capture of it, uh, holding on to it. And that's something, you know, making about what I can get out of it versus what's, you know, or is this something for me and my partner in a way to, to grow and connect and, and to, th- and to thrive. Thank you so much, Patrick. I've had a wonderful time with you. You're just a fountain of knowledge. Um, where can people find you if they want to consult you or if they want to work with you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we have, uh, so the practice I'm at is North Point Professional Counseling in uh, Nova, Michigan. Um, our website is uh, www.northpoint-counseling.com, and you can find me there. I have a bio page there. Um, I got a LinkedIn. You can find me there. Um, so those are probably the two best places to get a hold of me. Uh, you know, again, uh, trying to—I don't think I have any other. Yeah, it's probably my two most professional ones I have, at least that I can think of. So those are those would be some ways to get in touch with us. And uh, like I said, if you're interested in working with us, uh, you can always let us know, and we certainly be uh, working with our two all. We are taking clients. And like I said, this is a group of us that work specifically with sex addiction. Thank you so much. Thank you as well, V. That's it, folks. Maybe this is how it starts for you, I, and anyone else in our journey. Hope you like this content. Please follow, download, and share.
Thanks for listening. See you next time.